Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. Thanks. How are you today? I'm doing great, other than the fact that I think we're all getting buried in snow right now. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or Mount Sinai, or any of the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a special episode on leadership. We've invited two shoulder and elbow surgeons that work together in leadership positions at the same institution. First, we have Dr. Evan Flato, who serves as the president of Mount Sinai West in New York City, as well as servicing, serving as a professor of orthopedic surgery at Mount Sinai. Dr. Flato, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Peter. In addition, we have the supreme good fortune to be joined by Dr. Lisa Gallitz, who is the chair of orthopedic surgery at Mount Sinai, where she works alongside Dr. Flato. Dr. Gallitz, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Now, I wanted to get started. Both of you have led in multiple capacities in leadership roles on research teams, on clinical divisions, in your departments, and Dr. Flato's instance in your hospital system. So tell us, Dr. Gallitz, what led you to want to take on your current leadership position at Mount Sinai? I think I really recognized a great opportunity. I actually uh, remember very well when uh, Dr. Flato called and asked me if I would be interested in taking on the position. Um, I had been really focusing on uh, my clinical career and my research career and had attained a level of success that I thought would take me a lot longer uh, than it actually did. And so when this opportunity came up, as well as others, it was really just recognizing a tremendous opportunity. And it was a really good time in my life to kind of change the focus to building other young careers rather than just focusing on my own. Dr. Flato, how about you? You know, we're sure here, I'm sure, and I know Pete's sure that your position as president means you have less time for research and less time for clinical practice probably than you did 5, 10, 15 years ago or so. Tell us what led you to want to take on this particular position and what has it meant to you? Well, I didn't really want to take it on. Um, I, I was asked to take it on by the CEO of our healthcare system. Um, I do think one of the things that's uh, interesting about both Dr. Gallitz and me is that neither, both, I don't want to say we were reluctant, but we, you know, we hadn't like planned out our lives to get these jobs. It's sort of the opportunity arose and, and, and we took it. I was a student of Charlie Neer. He was my mentor when I was at Columbia. And I remember we were talking about careers and Dr. Neer a little upset that I might think of an administrative role. He had never been chair of anything or president. He'd been president of the Shoulder Society, but not never really a, a heavy administrative role. And he, he, he asked me, Who, who's the president of this hospital? This was at Columbia. I said, Tom Morris. He said, who was the last president? I said, I don't know. He said, how important a job can that be? <laughs> and then he, then he asked me, you know, who invented hip replacement? I said, well, Sir John Charnley. He said, so you know the name of a NHS consultant in rural England 50 years ago, but you don't know the name of the president of the last, of the last president of your own hospital. Let that be a lesson to you. Don't ever be a committee man. So he, he didn't have a lot of respect for hospital leaders. 
but what happened in 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 my case was I I wasn't sure I ever liked Dr. Near. I wanted to be a service chief and a clinician scientist and a researcher. And I, I came to Mount Sinai to work for a great chair, Dempsey Springfield, and to do my research. And when Dempsey stepped down, uh, I actually was eager to see if they could get another chair that I would want to work for. But in the end, I wound up taking the job and I, I grew to like it. Um, and But then they when we merged our hospital systems, our CEO, who had been a good boss to me when I was chair, said, I really need you to do this. So, you know, I, I, I took it and uh, I did have to give up my research. I, I, I turned my, our, my NIH grants over to my co-investigator and uh, because I couldn't mentor graduate students, et cetera. That was a bittersweet part of it. And I think, I think the, the hard part of leadership is giving up a little bit of your own career. I think Dr. Gallup said it well when she said, you know, mentoring young people rather than just building yourself. That was hard. I still operate a one day a week. It's a, not a big practice, but it's smaller than before. But I have come to like it. It's been a lot of fun running a hospital. Uh, you learn a lot of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, building programs and facilities and operating rooms and neurosurgical programs. So you give up something and you gain something. And it's been a great partnership with Lisa. Uh, she is not just a chair in the usual sense, she's a system chair. She, she's chair of orthopedics for an eight hospital system. It's a big job. And so I'm just one of those hospitals. So she really charts the strategy for the system and I chart strategy for my site and we overlap in figuring out how to build orthopedics at my place. Now, Dr. Gallitz, I'm sure that just as Dr. Flater just mentioned, this position involves new lessons, but also many new challenges. Tell us about, did you take any specific steps when you took on this position to build your leadership skills, to be able to meet those challenges? Was there any specific education you pursued to try and do this? Yeah, that, uh, that's a great question. And that's something that comes up a lot. I think, um, I think there are a lot of things that you can do without making a huge commitment. And I did several of those things. So years and years ago, AOA partnered with Kellogg uh, School of Business at Northwestern. And they had these modules. Uh, and you'd go to Chicago for a couple of days. And those were really useful. I didn't do all of them, probably about half. And uh, those were great. They planted some important seeds. It's not a lot of time, but I think that the instructors and the, the professors that participated were really able to drive home a couple of points. Um, and then uh, after I was here about a year, I went to Harvard School of Public Health. So they run a two-week in-residence program in Boston. And I went, there were about 50 to 60 participants, and there were about four or five new chairs, uh, some department chairs, some site chairs uh, from Mount Sinai. And we went and actually stayed there for two weeks. And that was an even deeper dive into finance, strategy, uh, those kind of things. And I really learned a lot my first five years in this position. So it's been about, it's been about five and a half years almost. Wow. I know time flies, right? It does fly, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
And I would say about a year ago, um, I met a couple of different people in different settings who had done an MBA. And I never really thought that I would be interested in doing that. Uh, but what they told me about it was so compelling um, that I, to make a long story short, decided to do it. So in August, I started uh, the EMBA program at Stern School of Business at NYU. And uh, a couple of things, a couple of reflections on this. Um, people say, oh, maybe you should have done it years ago. And I actually disagree. Um, I think if I had done it any time before now, it would have been lost on me. Uh, certainly, if I had done it as a resident, like some people do, at least in my situation, I really think that that information would have come in and I wouldn't have really used it and it went out. Right now, every single thing I'm learning is relevant and I am really enjoying it. It feels different to learn this way when every single day you apply the things that you've learned. Um, so I'm enjoying the other people that I'm meeting through this program and I really am starting, it's just making my view of the finance and the strategy even more uh, solid and I have to say, um, it was a great decision. It's a lot of work because um, I have a big job. So now I come home and do homework along with my uh, high school junior. So the two of us will graduate at the same time. So it's actually perfect timing. But um, yeah, so I am continuing to learn and continuing to uh, try to become better at my job. You know, with, with that in mind, and Pete and I were just talking about MBAs and the push of a lot of physicians early on, either in med school, when they're, you know, medical students or in residency or early on in practice trying to get that MBA. With um, with healthcare changing, as it certainly is, and changing by the day or even by the minute, it seems, and more physicians um, either trying to get completely out of leadership roles and just practice medicine or become more involved in leadership roles, particularly within their hospital or healthcare system. Do you think other than pursuing something like an MBA degree, we should start to incorporate business training and financial training into our residency programs, particularly for orthopedics, where it, it is a, a, a business driven field um, among many other things, you know, obviously among patient care and excellence and research and all that. Do you think this should become a formal part of our curriculum, should be tested on in the ABOS, or is this something that, you know, physicians should try to just figure out as they go within their practices? I think, well, I, that, I, I think, well, I'm sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I, I think that, I think that, uh, I, think that uh, I think what Dr. Gallup said is very important. I think some of this training, if you do it too early, you don't really understand the relevance uh, and it's not helpful. But I do think residents need to know more about how medicine works, how practices work, the relation to, to hospitals and whether that should be tested or not. I think it's, it's useful to have that as part of the education. Dr. Yep. I, um, again, I think if I had really done this program a, earlier, earlier in my career, a lot of the information would have been lost on me. Um, I would have probably thought it was very interesting, but I wasn't using it. And I think one thing that's really important is that if you're going to pursue an academic career, you, you can't do everything and really be good at it. So, my focus, the first, you know, couple of, well, probably it was really the first 16 years of my practice was 
focused on my academic career. So it was my clinical practice and taking care of my patients, which is number one, because if you're not a good surgeon, forget it. Um, and then second was focusing on my research. And I was given that advice by my former chair, Richard Gelberman. Uh, and I, I thought that that was really great advice to focus on that. And he provided an environment where I didn't have to worry about the business aspect of my practice. I was confident that he would take care of that. I felt like I was treated fairly. And so I was able to really focus on my research and becoming a great researcher and contributing to my field. I do agree with Dr. Flato that uh, we should help our residents understand coding and billing, what relationship they'll have with the hospital, having some uh, talk about negotiation, what's in the contract, what does it mean? Those types of things I think are very important. Um, but deep dives on finance and strategic planning probably can come later when you reach that point. So that's just how I feel about it. And, and another thing is that if you go too early into business, you almost become a second rate business person because the people coming out of Harvard, MBAs, et cetera, you know, will know more than you. What I think makes it special is if you are, if you do distinguish yourself in clinical care research or basic science research, you've sort of established your, your preeminence in those areas. And now you've sort of deserved the right to lead as an academic leader. And then with this training, you become more adept at doing it. Uh, you know, uh, you know, many non-doctors run hospitals, but faculty and and staff look up to the physician leader, the surgeon leader. So you really need to establish yourself, I, I think, to have credibility as a surgeon first. If they respect you as a surgical leader, as a researcher, as a teacher, then they're more willing to listen to you administratively. And, and, and so I think uh, it's not like you drop out of medicine to become a, a business person. You sort of, you know, build. And I think the way Dr. Gallus described doing it, building your career first and then becoming a leader is really not a bad way to do it at all. Now, Dr. Flato, tell us a little bit, did, did you pursue as you climbed the leadership ladder any specific leadership education? Or is anything well, you recommend to people that are looking for that kind of thing? And then also, what are your thoughts on the MBA? Yeah, you know, we were going to have a debate at the AOA. Ken Yamaguchi and I were going to debate this. You know, Ken, who got an MBA, was going to argue that you need it. And I was going to argue that it's worthless, you know, just to make it interesting. Um, I, I did the same uh, Harvard program for chiefs of clinical services that Dr. Gallus just mentioned. I, you know, I did it many years before. Uh, which is a great program, and it's not just great because you uh, you learn actual material, but you're you're cooped up with thirty to fifty other CMOs, chairs, chiefs of service. So you trade your stories on horrible deans and good deans, and how you got cheated out of this money and that space, and so you 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 build connections and 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 uh, friends in many different disciplines, you know, in other fields, dermatology, rheumatology, you know, et, et cetera. I also, you know, have, uh, 
you know, read read books on certain subjects that are recommended. I never, I did not do a formal business training, and I, I think it would have been good to do it, uh, but I haven't. Um, I, I tend to collaborate with, uh, you know, we have people within the organization who have MBAs or we're in uh, strategic planning, and so we we sort of collaborate. It's it's like the old issue of do you want to get an MD and a PhD or should an MD collaborate with a PhD? So. I think there are different ways of doing it. They both they both have their merits. Any specific books you'd recommend? Uh, ooh, um, you know my senior memory, uh, my senior <laughs> having a senior moment with all the uh, the names. But there's some good books on. There was one book on teams. I can't remember the name, but it was about building teams, which is very important to what we do. And uh, I do remember a couple of points from the book. One of them is that great teams argue a lot. You know, if you look at Apple or uh, or uh, Facebook, uh, if a team always agrees, it's false social cohesion. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time. I mean, the two things I brought with, you know, when I took over running a hospital, I didn't know anything about running a hospital. I mean, I thought they were crazy to give me this job. Uh, but you learn it. it. Took me a year or two of, of you know ridiculous hours to figure it out. But I did know a lot about mentoring and I did know a lot about building teams. And, you know, you have to get rid of people who can't who can't, can't work together and hire people who can and then lead them, but always let them tell you the truth. You know, if you're, I, I can tell you, Dr. Gallitz knows, I have several people who work for me that if they think what I said is stupid, they tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that keeps things, uh, you know, pretty straight. And then, you know, I, I've read some books on negotiation and uh, and uh, uh, accounting and, and 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 things like that. I do remember one thing from the Harvard course. I don't know if you you if you were, or had the same teacher, Lisa, but the accounting professor uh, told me uh, about the difference between. Uh, he, he used to say anyone can manage a budget. The issue is managing the actuals, and he gave a great <laughs> story of where. Uh, people had this fantasy budget where they hoped for things would happen. And in the end, of course, nothing happened as they expected. So I think the, the risk in, in, in leadership is to talk yourself into hopeful, in the way you hope life will be. It's very hard to look life in the face and, and understand what's actually gonna happen. And, and I think that was an important part of his lesson is try to predict the way the world really will be you're going to lose money, admit you're going to lose money and figure out how to deal with it. You're talking about the five dysfunctions of the team, I think. Yep, yep, yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the book. Yeah, yeah. That was recommended to me too. That's a great book. You know, speaking of lessons um, that you might learn or might try to anticipate, um, Dr. Gallitz, can you share with us some of the of what you think or consider are the most important or hardest earned lessons that you've learned about leadership during your time, um, you know, in your leadership positions? Uh, maybe you you know, reflect on some experiences that um, that you've really learned from, maybe the hard way, or maybe not. Uh, maybe everything's gone super smooth. Um, but what, what do you think some of those uh, you know hardest learned lessons might be? Yeah. Well, thanks, super Rachel. Smooth, I can Lisa. assure it's all been super smooth for it's you. It's all been super smooth. Yeah. Um, I think um, uh, one of the well, one of the most important rules, and I call this my Gallitz rule is never, ever, ever answer an email if you feel any emotion other than pure joy. So that is a rule that I live by. And um, 
I did make some early mistakes at, you know, getting angry or feeling a certain way and answering an email. And I think, you know, with today's world and we communicate electronically, you want to be completely vanilla when you're online um, because it just can be misunderstood. And some things, quite frankly, are just better with a phone call. Um, and a lot of people don't want to talk on the phone these days, but some stuff just be is better discussed on the phone. Um, and in person, I try and meet with faculty in person as much as possible. COVID has definitely changed that, but I don't think we're always going to be doing Zoom. Um, and there's just no substitute for a face-to-face -face conversation, especially when it's a difficult conversation. Um, that's, that's so important. It's a, yeah. such an important point. The other thing that I think is so important is communication communication and more communication. Um, and I try and get better at that all the time. But if you look at conflicts between people um, and misunderstandings or when, you know, obviously sometimes people, you know, your stakeholders and different things and, and everybody comes to the table with different ideas and, and different priorities. And, you know, you, you kind of have to, we all represent different things. And so I think, really trying to understand where everyone else is coming from helps frame the conversation. The other thing is if you have a, you know, let's say, you know, one of your residents or another faculty member has done something that you don't understand and you think, you know, wow, that that's really a problem. You know, the first thing I do is try and go and hear their story because they may see it completely differently. And so I think it's really important if you're having a difficult or confrontational conversation, I feel like I can be much more effective and also much more patient and understanding in the conversation if I can picture where the other person is coming from. So you know, when people ask me what I do most of the day, honestly, most of the day I talk to people. I'm just constantly talking to people. I get on the phone and I talk to them about one thing or another, but at the end of the day, it's just all about communication. Uh, yeah, I want to emphasize that because I think it, it's, a, it's a mistake many people have. They want to show how smart they are and how quickly they arrive at things. It's a great sign of respect to listen to people. And even if you know, even if you know you are not gonna do something that someone came to you to ask, right? If you just blurt that out at the beginning, they'll be very offended. And if you listen to them, first of all, half the time I've met with someone who wants something and I know I'm not gonna give it to them, Half the time, by the time we get halfway through the conversation, they've sort of figured out it's not logical, right? Or it's not going to work. And then half the time, they'll just admit it. I guess that isn't such a good idea as I ask them a few questions. How are we going to do it? How are we going to fund it? But many of them will always remember that you heard them out and you listened to them and you thought about it. And even though you didn't come out with the decision they wanted, and once in a blue moon, they convince you. Once in a blue moon, you realize something you didn't hadn't thought about when they tell you. So the old two ears, one mouth, listening and showing people the respect of FaceTime is really, really important for leadership. And, and as Dr. Gallup said, not just firing off an email, but you know, sitting down with them. You know, it's like that scene from The Godfather where the Don sits down with the person he's not going to agree to do drugs, but he pours him a drink, he listens to him. And he hears him out and then tells him he's not going to do it. 
uh, it's a very important thing. And the other thing is difficult conversations. You, you can't shrink from them. One of my rules is always do that which you least want to do first. First thing every day is I call the person I'm dreading talking to or you know, go to the meeting I really don't want to go to, and you get it over with. And uh, people remember that you, that you were honest with them and straight, and you, and you never, I, my memory is too bad. I can never lie to anybody because I can never keep it straight. But you're always honest. You always listen. You're thoughtful. And in the end, you do what has to be done. Uh, people get used to that and they respect it. What great advice from both of you. I, I honestly just have to say anecdotally, my, my chair has given me the same advice on not sending that um, emotional or as she calls it, um, angry email that I have definitely learned the hard way not to send. And so I'm just so thankful that we have draft folders. Um, no one is ever allowed to see a draft folder because um, that would not be healthy for anyone. Uh, but what a great lesson. And for our, I think our young listeners and probably some of our more experienced listeners, I would take that one home uh, for sure. Um, I know personally that has, that has really turned the corner for me in a lot of, a lot of ways. So thank you guys for that advice. Um, I want to, I want to do something a little bit different here. I'm going to ask you a rapid fire question. Can so I, can we'll I, before you Dallas. go on, can I, before you go on, Rachel, can I just add one extra piece? The real value of email, which people often forget, is to memorialize a conversation, not to have the conversation. So just as you have to be careful not to fire off an angry email trying to debate something, it's sometimes good to have that in-person conversation, but then to follow the conversation up with an email saying, you know, just just, you know, just to memorialize our discussion or in follow up to our discussion, I'm going to do X and you're going to do Y, because sometimes memories fade uh, and people don't quite remember what you agreed. So if anything, the, the cold email in the light of day after the discussion or the argument is really the effective. I just want to say that I think that's like that nugget is so hard one and so important that if you have a conversation where you come to an agreement to send an email to say, this is my understanding of our conversation yep. is yep. so important. Yep. And then you find uh, out if it isn't their understanding. <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. You'd rather know that then as opposed to weeks later where then they can say, well, we talked about it. That's not what I heard. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Go ahead, it, it's so true. Um, all right. Well, let, let me take us to this rapid fire um, question, I guess. And we'll start with Dr. Gallitz. So I'm going to ask you a question and Pete and I would love to hear what immediately comes to mind. So um, just first thing. Don't go for it, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Dr. Plato, you're next. So, so uh, <laughs> you'll get a different question. So no time to think. Um, so Dr. Gallitz, what do you think in your opinion are the three best qualities of a leader? I would say uh, a strong confidence, uh, communication skills, and empathy. I like it. Okay. And Dr. Flato, you might be able to guess what's coming at you, but what do you think when you, what makes you cringe? What are the three worst qualities in a leader? Well, first, I mean, I think the worst quality is a lack of integrity or dishonesty. Uh, I think that's just a poison. That's just a poison in the well. Um, I think uh, a slightly less terrible 
is sort of inconsistency or a kind of a reactive nature, you know, where you're situational, where a leader who just reacts to the last person who spoke to, the, to him or her or uh, to a crisis rather than having a, a long view, a sort of strategic, uh, strategic view. And then, and then finally, uh, a leader, the other third worst thing I think is someone who doesn't really grapple with the hard issues, who puts things off or kicks the can down the road. Dr. Gals, it seems to me one of the most challenging parts of leading an orthopedic department is that a lot of your faculty are busy surgeons that have their own goals, and their own priorities, but then you have this overarching mission or set of priorities. Tell, tell us how you've gotten your team moving in the same direction that's maybe a direction you think is productive. How have you motivated your surgeons to go where hopefully you're all hoping to go? Well, I think, you know, in my situation, I have a really pretty diverse crowd. So I have a couple of hospitals that are what we would think of as traditional academic surgeons. And then I have a pretty good number who are community surgeons, because remember, we're a health system now. So I have not only Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai West and Morningside, which are primarily academic hospitals, but I have hospital downtown. And then there's a network of orthopedic surgeons that are on Long Island. And they're really all, uh, you know, they're all part of the Department of Orthopedics. And so the first thing that I had to learn and recognize is that not all sites are going to be the same and they serve different patient populations, which is another really important thing. And so you have to understand the population that the physicians are serving and kind of, again, kind of understand where they're coming from and, and what context they're practicing in. But I'm assuming beyond that, uh, you're looking at really the academic, um, you know, the academic faculty. And I think the physicians that are involved in the teaching program and uh, the ones that are teaching the fellows, I think, you know, we are, you know, our goal is to provide the best quality care in the world. And so one of the things uh, that I really tried to do when I got here was establish a very strong quality program so that um, we are really keeping track of data. Um, I for, I'm fortunate to have an informatics person who provides me a tremendous amount of data on the surgeons. And so I see everything and quality and the way that we care for patients is number one. In terms of research, I also understand that I'm going to have a few people who are going to do a truckload of research, um, and you know, like like you and Rachel. But there are some people who are great teachers who have uh, other priorities, um, and and maybe they're better at you know uh, running the teaching programs, being the program director. Although that person could also do research, but and so you have to kind of really figure out what people's strengths are and then try to create an environment where everybody can reach their goals. And so I meet with everybody every once a year uh, for an end of year evaluation. And what I really wanna hear from them is where they wanna go with that next year. You know, what, what do they wanna do? Do they want to be involved in national organization, get on some committees? Do they wanna do research? And I just kind of 
you know, it is an evaluation, but I also want to hear what their hopes and dreams are and what their goals are. And if they're a chief of service, what their goals are for the service. And then, then it's on me a little bit to figure out, well, you know, what can I do to support that? You know, how can I make this the best place in the world for them to practice? Um, and it, it, you know, it's not perfect. Um, but I try and do what I can to create an environment where everyone's comfortable doing what they're doing and can excel doing what they're doing. Like one thing that Dr. Gallat said that's I think very important is a common mistake is to try to, you know, say to a faculty member, I need you to do X or I, I, I want you to, this is what you need to do to develop. And yes, you, you want to guide your faculty, but you also want to learn what they're good at and help them gravitate to what they really you know are, are most suited to and, and and recognizing what their talents or their interests are and i think that point she made is very important Senator Flato, i'm sure this is a even more of a challenge when you run a hospital because there are departments that probably see themselves as competitors or you know people that are saying vying for the same resources tell yeah. us how you've motivated your team to all be working towards a common goal of the patient well, you know, a little bit of competition is okay if it's managed well. The difference between my job and Dr. Gallitz's job is she has a tricky job. She represents her faculty to administration and she represents administration to her faculty. She's neither a labor leader nor a shill for management, right? She has to walk that line. I'm a shill for management. I'm, I'm totally in bed with hospital leadership and system leadership. So I have to figure out how to make the budget work and, and the ORs go. And there's a lot of overlap. You know, you have neurosurgery and orthopedics both doing spine. You have plastics and orthopedics doing hand. You know, you have, uh, you know, GI surgeons and gastroenterologists doing uh, endoscopy. There's some areas where there's, you know, you have physiatry and pain medicine doing injections. So there are areas where there's competition. There's areas where everyone, you know, you know, pulls together. And I think a lot of it is just sitting everyone down in a room and sort of hashing it out. Uh, the the fun of, of of it is that is that you have to, you know, you know, you have to make it all sort of work. I think at the end of the day. Just like uh, Lisa has to make sure that the bills go out and the and the salaries get paid and the grants go out, you know, I have to make sure that the OR works. And an example is because I'm a surgeon and I have some not and I still practice, I have some knowledge of, of the OR, I really micromanage the OR. You know, you can't micromanage everything. You have to know when to take the 50,000 foot view and when to get in the weeds. I think the hardest part of leadership is if you're always in the, if you're always at 50,000 feet, you're out of touch. If you're always in the weeds, you get bogged down. You have to know how to sort of hover and dance. But the OR, I manage very, very tightly. I, I review people's block time as an example, block time utilization every quarter. We reassign block time. And, and my, what I always say to people is all this, all these resources are mine, not yours. Don't tell me you have your block time. It's all my block time. I just allow you to have it. And the and the re, the net result is I try to get away from surgeons fighting over who gets the Monday morning slot and you know who gets uh, who gets which team and 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 we try to make it more how are you using it and what how could you be more productive 
And it takes a long time to change cultures like that, but I think that's an important part too. And in the end, you know, if you make the right decisions and you're fair to people, in the end, they sort of trust you. If you do bad things, then of course that's not helpful, but you can be a little bit of a dictator if, if you're always listening and you're always uh, doing things that in the end they, they agree made sense. What great advice again from both of you. Um, it, it's really, I mean, Pete and I, I think are, are really enjoying this and I'm sure our listeners are too. So thank you guys so much. Um, Dr. Gallitz, I have, I have a question for you. And as a woman, I'm sure you get asked questions like the one I'm about to ask you all the time, but mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you anyway, because I think it's an important topic. Oftentimes, women in leadership positions get treated a little bit differently for saying the same thing or doing the same thing as a male in that leadership position might say or do, uh, or even just in regular life and not a leadership position. So for example, a woman who raises their voice in the OR, a female surgeon, might be perceived as loud or bossy or sometimes even called another word that starts with the letter B, whereas a man who says the same thing in the same tone is often perceived as strong, assertive, in control of the situation. Now, on the flip side, when a woman backs down to avoid this situation, they might be perceived as uh, weak or a pushover, whereas a man, if they back down from something, might be perceived as cool, calm, collected, etc. How do you advise women um, going through residency, going through fellowship in early in their careers um, to, to manage this? And further, what would you say to our both our male and female listeners in terms of recognizing some of these unconscious biases and addressing them? Yeah, you just asked me the million dollar question. Um, I think about this a lot. And the short answer is I, I'm not quite sure yet. I learn more about this very thing all the time. And I'm, I have not stopped <laughs> trying to figure it out. Um, I think, you know, it is it is very hard, and I have seen a lot of women get into trouble with this. When I know if they were a different gender, they probably wouldn't be in so much trouble. And I think, you know, for myself, it just um, comes back to communication skills. Um, I am not someone by nature who raises my voice. I'm not a yeller. Um, and I tend to be kind of on the quiet side anyway. Um, but I, uh, I, but I don't lack things to say. So that probably helps me out a little bit. Um, I, and you know, again, when, when it comes to having difficult conversations and conversations that matter, I mean, sometimes you do need to push your way into that conversation, but you always have to be kind of watching and reading other people and kind of getting that, you know, emotional intelligence feedback from the people that you're talking to, because they'll kind of unconsciously show you what's too much, what's not enough, right? They're listening or backing away from you when you're talking to them. And so that's an art of conversation. One of the things that I always tell residents, um, women residents, and I've heard them complain and not, I don't even want to call it a complaint because they're not complaining. They're stating the fact that they have difficulties with staff and with nurses. And I just, in fact, this morning had a conversation with one of the women who is about to graduate. And, and I told her, and I've told other women that, you know, the further you go along your career, the more 
the, the better your position is to affect change. So you're not going to revolutionize how people communicate in your OR as a resident. You're just not, you're not, you're not that person, but when you're a surgeon and you, then you are the leader of your team, you will come into the operating room and you will set the tone. Um, and I think women tend to be very powerful team leaders because we generally do listen. Um, and we, you know, and, and we, you know, like men, we care and, and are compassionate and, and have patient safety in mind. And so I, you know, when we're talking about working with people in the OR, I always just say, someday you will be in charge of this. This will be your kingdom or your queendom, and you will set the tone and you will dictate how people communicate. And, and when you're in that kind of a position, that that's when you can really make changes. And then when you're in your national organizations and you, and you kind of, if, if that's what you aspire to and you work your way up, uh, you, you become in a position where you can influence those things more than you can when you're at the bottom. So it's a little frustrating, um, but it gets easier as you, as you progress. And then those leadership opportunities for women are opportunities for them to lead by example to also give men feedback, you know, when you're in a position that you can do that, you can affect change much more powerfully. So I tell them to be patient, to watch what they say uh, and how they say it, uh, but that they shouldn't be completely passive, but that as they progress, they will have a greater opportunity to affect change. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an important issue and something that I just it's I think it's so disappointing in our culture generally that this is such still such an issue that we in some ways it feels like we while we're making progress it's been so slow so i i I'm thankful you're willing to talk about it with us because I know it's not an easy thing for many people to talk about um, you know many of our listeners are students and residents and fellows or young surgeons and um I know both of you have seen many young surgeons and I'm sure you've watched them make a wide variety of mistakes, many of which I probably made myself. <laughs> what what advice would you have for our listeners who are just starting out, Dr. Flata? What what you know if you have a, a young faculty member comes in and says, "Blank slate, t- tell me what you could tell me." What would you share? Well, I, I you know I always tell my fellows or in my residents that if you lie awake at night after an OR day obsessing over a mistake you made or something you could have done better and then you just make up your mind to never do it again and to do something better, you do that every time, you're like a 99th percentile surgeon. You know, It's so easy to make the same mistake. It, quality comes from being obsessed with mistakes and, and using them as opportunities, you know, opportunities to improve. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's an, old, there's an old joke in surgery that experience is when you recognize a mistake when you make it for the second time. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, so, uh, I think that, I think that, uh, it's healthy. You don't want to become, you know, you don't want to lose your, you know, become insecure or lose your self-confidence, but it's, it's good to always be questioning, you know, what you're doing. Can I add to that? Dr. Gallitz? Yeah. Yes, please. I I was about to ask the same question. Yeah, I think. You know, one of the things when some young people get involved in things early on, they you can you can say yes to too many things. 
Yep. Uh, because if you're a hard worker and you want to do things, people start asking you. And then the next thing you know, you're writing a chapter for everybody's book. You're going to every shoulder course at the academy. You're going, you know, running around like crazy, giving 10 million talks at the end. That sounds like the first 10 years of your career, Lisa. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, and And then the next thing you know, you know, you're just strung out all the time and I mean, I've literally made myself sick a couple times because I had to stay up to like three or four in the morning making talks before I was leaving to go to a meeting. And because I, I just didn't, you know, I was just trying to do too much. And so I, I always try and encourage now people to kind of pick, pick what you want to do and focus just on that. And one of the things that I did was I, I didn't join Anna and uh, the Sports Medicine Society. I decided that my organization was going to be shoulder and elbow. And so, um, you know, I kind of started to veer off toward those organizations too, because a lot of us are involved in everything, but my research was pulling me in one direction. And of course I have a family, so there was that. And so I just kind of dropped my aspirations of being an ANA and an AOSSM member because I just realized that I can't give my all to every single organization. So, so that, that was kind of my thing. Um, and it was still a lot. Um, and so I just kind of encourage people to decide, you know, what is your thing? Uh, what, you know, what is your vision for yourself? Not that you totally know from the get-go, like you should explore things and figure that out. But everything you do should build toward your goal. Um, and if it if it's distracting you from your mission, you should drop that uh, because it is really easy to just get get spread too thin. So yeah, focus. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how appreciative I am both of you taking this time with us. Um, so many valuable lessons in such a short period of time. This is definitely one that I'll go back and re-listen to again to try and make sure I pick them all up. I know you're both busy, and I, I again, I think your time is well spent. We really appreciate your, your coming on and sharing all this with us. Well, thank you for having us. It was really, really fun to talk about it with you. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I would echo Pete. I think we could keep this going for another hour or more. Um, What an amazing opportunity for both of us, as well as our listeners, to have such an incredible conversation um, with the two of you, with Drs. Gallitz and Flato. Um, Unfortunately, that really is all the time we have for this podcast. But again, thank you so much to our guests. And for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, stay safe, stay healthy, and please don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.